Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and just worship you and to look at your word. We ask you to lead and guide as we go through this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at adoption today. Starting at Romans 8, verse 14 through 17. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We're going to look at this, the idea of adoption. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at what Paul was thinking when he used this word adoption. Because he lived in the Romans, Roman days, and so he would have had a Roman understanding of adoption. Uh, so we're going to look a little bit about at Roman, Roman adoptions. Uh, now, when we speak the word adoption in our days, we're usually thinking of little kids adding to the family so that we can care for, you know, little kids and just give them a home. Uh, that is not what the Romans thought of when they thought of adoption. The adopted person was usually an adult male from a lower social class that was adopted into your family. Uh, slaves could be the person adopted if they were, they'd been around the family so long and, and usually the father didn't have a son or didn't have a worthy son to take the inheritance so he would adopt a, a son, usually a, a trusted slave or if, a, or if one of his slaves or somebody saved his life that could make them worthy of an adoption or he could just go to a lower, lower family in, in, in class and it, you know that had too many boys <laughs> And say, I want to adopt your, you know, your worthy son to be my heir. And the heir would take over the family, would take, you know, would be responsible for the family. And this was in a day when the father was everything. Basically, the father in a Roman household was God. He told the, the daughters who they could marry, who they couldn't marry. He told the sons what jobs they could have, what jobs they wouldn't do. Uh, he held the purse strings of the family. He could do whatever he wanted. He could beat them to death if he wanted uh, with nobody being able to say anything to him because they were his family. And so he usually kept their family small because too many kids meant the inheritance would be diluted too much. And it was right, quite common for them to take a child they didn't want and throw it into the river or sacrifice it to the gods. Okay, if you had too many boys and... You were worried that the boys might try to usurp you, so you got rid of a bunch of the boys and kept it very small. And too many girls were really a problem because you had to give a dowry with each girl that got married, so you would, you know, many, many of these children were killed. So this was the day that Paul's living, and he's living in a time when the adoption comes. Now, some things about adoption, there was a big process of being adopted. First, they would go out to the, the justice system in front of the people, and they would ask the father, do you want to adopt this child? And the father, of course, would say yes, because he's the one that started the whole process. And then the next question would be to the person who was going to be adopted, do you want to be adopted? Do you, do you approve of this whole process? He would say, obviously, hopefully, he would say yes at this point. It's, those questions, I'm sure, are just perfunctory at this point. Uh, and then they'd go to the people, do you approve of this adoption? And they, it was all, again, perfunctory, but they would say yes. And so we're going to look at this. Well, all these things have some input into how Paul's looking at when he says adoption. Because the Father in heaven has decided he wanted to adopt us. We choose to say yes to him when we accept Jesus Christ. And the Spirit bears witness to that adoption process. So again, we see the adoption process just in the whole of salvation. So now we look at here is what adoption meant to the Roman citizen. The adopted child had equal status as the natural child. They became a joint heirs, it says in this verse. That meant 
if they, there were five kids, he you know, and he was added to that five kids or be six kids, he got an equal share, one sixth share of the inheritance. It's very important for us to understand we are adopted in Christ. We have equal share with Christ to all the riches of God. That's what adoption means. We're adopted into his family. The next thing that was that they looked at is they got a new name. We're told that we have in Revelation, we're told that we're going to receive a new name in heaven that only Jesus knows. That we have a new name. We are a new creation in Christ. We are new. That's the next part. It cut all of his family ties. When an adopted, when a child was adopted, or a young man in this case, was adopted into the new family, he cut all the ties to his old family. He was no longer considered their child. He had no inheritance in their family, no, no uh, contracts. All the contracts were, were broken. If he owed debts, they were canceled. Like just because he was adopted <laughs> he was literally considered a new person a brand new person in the Roman Empire because he was adopted anything old disappeared isn't that what Jesus and God does to us he brings us into our family says the you are a new creation the old is passed away and he says basically all your old debts are canceled all your old contracts are canceled you are brand new in God's kingdom. Again, that verse is a picture of adoption. Okay? As Paul understood adoption from the Roman days. Think about this. How many times do you know, kids that are adopted, people keep it, their parents try to keep it away from them because there's this you know, bad image of you're adopted. You, you weren't wanted by your uh, family. But by the contrast is you were wanted by some other family. So it should be a really good thing to be adopted even in our day but it's got this kind of negative connotation somebody didn't want you that's why you had to leave their family in the Roman days it was considered a special privilege to be adopted they didn't adopt a lot of people but when it was done it was it was a big deal you know because it was again remember what we said it was usually from a lower class status you know and it could be just somebody lower in 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 the high status than you or all the way down into slave being made into a family member of a Roman house. And so it was a very privileged thing. It didn't happen a lot, but it happened, you know, just pretty much like it does in our world. It happens frequently enough that people are aware with it, but not, it's not an everyday occurrence, or was not even then that tame. They were seen as a child of the new father, okay? And this is kind of hard to get. And they were associated, and they, they were assigned to be the child of his first wife. If he had more than one wife, he, it was to the first wife, the most important wife in, in, the, in the relationship. And they saw him almost as equal to the natural. Okay, he was literally considered to be the son of those two. Okay, and we just want to bring this up because this is what happens to us. We're brought into God's family and we have a new father, okay? And the most important thing about this is, was uh, two, uh, two things. Uh, and it was a complete transfer. You were completely taken out of your old life and put into a new life. And the last part was you couldn't be disinherited. You could disinherit any natural born child if you wanted to, but you could not disinherit the child that you chose to, to, to uh, adopt. So this gives you an idea. When, when Paul's talking about adoption, these are the things he's thinking about. Okay, and we want to be able to grab hold of this because it's important for us to look at this. So we're going to look at this. You know, for as many of you are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God or daughters of God, the children of God would be a good translation of that. You have not received the spirit of bondage again. That's the bondage of sin that we were taken out of. Okay, and remember, he's going to come back to adoption. All of your old debts and contracts are ended at adoption. We're being adopted. All of that bondage is gone. You know, and to fear, but, but you have received the spirit of adoption. We became his children, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. 
And Abba is, and we've talked about this before, Abba is that kind of, it's a very informal, very, it's like daddy. It's, it's about as, you know, tender and emotional as you can get, you know, for, you know, and then I've mentioned that girls like to use, you know, daddy more than boys usually, but boys will use dad or, you know, or pa or something that's very, you know, less formal than father, but, you know, but that's what he's basically saying, that he's the person you can come and say, hey, pa, how are you doing? Or, hey, daddy, how are you doing? Uh, and that's how intimately we're supposed to be related to God because of our adoption. We are able to come into him and basically get the picture of the child that can say daddy to somebody is the child that can sit up, just crawl up in the lap of the father and say, you know, put their arms around him and say, I love you, I'm here. And he's going to accept that child. Now, some, a child that can say daddy is not one they say, go away, get away, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's not, that's not the child that's going to come say daddy. Uh, and this is the intimate relationship that we have with him, that he is so much there that he is not just father. Now, he's just not that formal title, father. Now, I've always hated that title because it just sounds too formal. My stepmom always wanted to be called mother. I don't know why she wanted to be called mother, but she always wanted to have that formal mother. And I could call her mom, and the little, little ones all called her mommy. <laughs> And she always wanted to be called mother. I took two minute girls before I came to this class. I'm about to fall asleep. Oh. Take two? Yeah. What are you supposed to take two? Oh, take My two. allergies are terrible. Yeah. Excuse me, everybody. Okay. okay. Are you I able know. to get home? Okay? Yeah, I can get that quad home. Oh, thanks for making the coffee. Oh, yeah. Don't forget to take it apart. Yeah. I'm going home to take it down. Right. Here, Amy, here's your uh, bulletin from Sunday. <laughs> oh, okay. You forgot it here, and I kept, <coughs> kept it warm for you. I read it for you. All right. So we had that idea that the intimacy we have with the Father. He's not just this big guy in the sky, you know, the, the mean overlord. Uh, he wants that intimacy of the Father that we can just crawl up in the lap with, we can snuggle up with and say, hey, you know, hi, Dad, how you doing? Uh, and that's what this verse... And then it goes on, the Spirit... Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We really need to get hold of this. We are the children of God. We have access to everything God has. Not that he's just going to dole it out to us for us to use however we want, but we have access to be able to praise him, to, to know that we have access to answered prayer. And very important for us to understand, answered prayer He's not going to answer every prayer that's going to harm us, but he, he's going to meet all our needs. He's promised us he's going to meet all our needs, and he does. Yes, he does. But you know, he also wants to give us some of our wants. Not all of them, because he doesn't want us to take it for granted or anything. Just as, just as we would with our children, we were going to make sure their needs were met. We're, we put a roof over their head, food on the table, clothes on their backs. You know, gave them a little bit of allowance sometimes, you know, and sometimes just gave them big gifts because we wanted to bless them. You know, you're my child, I want to give you something. God does the same thing for us. Oftentimes he'll come and say, oh, here, just have, just have this gift. And we need to recognize that it is a gift. Sometimes we well, oh, look how lucky I am. I just got this, this, this new car or this, you know, better home or this better job, you know, and we don't recognize that it is God who gave it to us. And we want to be able to understand that because so easy for us to start thinking that somehow I brought something into my life when it's God that brought it into my life. Uh, I was reading a book that was talking about the gifts that we have, and usually when what happens to us is whatever gift we have, we tend to think everybody should have that gift. And we try to try to push it on people. And I've seen people who do that. You know, people who are teachers try to get other, everybody to be good teachers. You know, those who are good at helping with things always want to get everybody to help. And when we're doing the thing that God has gifted us to do, it seems so simple. And it's like, well, why can't everybody do this? It's not a struggle at all. <laughs> and we've got to remember that what we think is no struggle in our service to God is because he's gifted us to be that way. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a teacher. I know that. Everybody can't be a teacher. Everybody can't be somebody that helps everybody. 
I'm amazed at some of these people that just love to come in and help. Do I help people? Yes. Is that my gift? Not really. Yeah. You know, but I know people, my wife loves to help people. And you've, I've seen that you like to help people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's what's important. We do what God tells us to do. It's easy. And the thing we have to be careful of is not to think that everybody's bad because they're not doing what we're gifted to do. And we need to find what it is we are gifted to do and do it. And then the flip side of that is not to get envious of those who have other gifts that we don't have. You know, uh, and this happens a lot with pastors at times. You know, they look at what they've got and they go, wow, that, probably, that person has such a big church and, you know, such a good following. He's a good teacher. He's on the radio. He's on TV, you know, whatever. And you kind of get envious of, you know, wow, why can't I have that? And that's something we've got to be careful of. Uh, for myself, I, I've got to be careful that I don't get envious of those who help people or are easy to talk to, have it easy to talk to people because God's gifted me in other areas. And so we need to be careful. Envy can destroy you when you're doing good and with gift that you're given and then you want something somebody else has. And that can destroy everything because it destroys the pleasure of doing what you're doing. And we have to be careful about that because it is a bad thing. And there's also the idea sometimes, and this church tends to fall into that because it's such an older church, that people go back, I remember when <laughs> we used to do whatever it might be. And living in the past glories is not a good thing. Even in our own life, we can't do that. I remember when I was so close to God and I did all these other things and God said, no, this is where we're at now. We're not, we're not back there in those, <laughs> in those times when you were a different person. They say the older we get, the better I was. Better <laughs> That's we, true. Better, better we were. <laughs> that is true. I mean, Past glories. And part of that is twofold. Number one, it's a gift from God that we don't remember all the bad from our from our old days because it would be terrible to remember everything bad that's ever happened to you on the very forefront of your mind. And so we always remember the old days as better than they were. Uh, I did that when I first moved to Kingman. I got a job in a restaurant and because I didn't have anything, anything else to do at the time. And I go, I really loved restaurant work. And I did love, I really did love restaurant work. It didn't take me long to remember all the reasons I didn't like restaurant work. Uh, there were still the things I liked about restaurant work that were still there and were still good. Yeah. But all of a sudden, the things I didn't like about restaurant work crashed back in on my memory real fast. You know, the, the 50 hour days, the people calling out, the, you know, the griping customers, all the different things that happened that, that are a pain in the neck about the business all of a sudden came crashing in and, and a very clear focus on, yeah, it wasn't all that good. It, it was fun, but it wasn't. Uh, and so we, we do that. We do that. And I think it's a gift from God that we don't remember all, all the negativity that our, that our life brings us. But we've got to be careful not to start looking back and saying, oh, it was all just perfect over there. Every generation looks back to the previous generation to say, oh, how good it was. And if you were there, it really wasn't all that good. You had the same problems you have today, but you kind of glossed over it because you just remember the good, the good times, the good days. You know, people remember the 50s with a great fondness, but they also don't remember all the negativity of the of the 50s and the bad things about the 50s and and most people wouldn't want to go back into the past and really deal with what they had to deal with. I uh, remember the 60s. Huh? I said I remember the 60s. <laughs> I vaguely remember the 60s. I was born in the 60s, so early 60s. But, uh, but that, you think about that, that is exactly what it is. We look back and we say, oh, it was so good. We look back at the early church and go, oh, they had it so good. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us. Paul's writing all screwed up it was just like we are. Yeah. And so, yes, they had some great benefits. Yes, they had some power, but they were also had a lot of problems. So we've got to remember this as we look back on these things that, you know, it's not all, all rosy in the past. And it's not all drear in the future. But by the same token, we are coming closer and closer to the end days, and it is going to get worse and worse. It doesn't mean that all is bad, though. It won't be all bad. Even in the seven-year tribulation, there's the tribulation saints pre preaching the gospel. There's an angel in heaven giving the you know, flying around in the heavens preaching the gospel out loud. It's going to be a very strange world at that time. 
But there's still good happening. Even with Satan being in control of things, God is still saying, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm going to bring people to me. So even in the worst time in the history of the, this world that we, can, that we know of, the tribulation period, good is still happening. Not as much as before, but good will still be happening. And we want to be able to look at this. It says, we are children of God. He wants to meet ours. And then it says, if children, then heirs. Okay? And this is what I said. We are God's children. We are heirs of what the inheritance is. And an equal share of an infinity means that we get a lot. <laughs> it's not a small... No matter how many people God puts into his family... An equal share, when you divide infinity by any number, you still have infinity left. So we have an equal share of an infinite amount of stuff, so we have an equal share of infinity. So it's kind of amazing when you think about it. I'm a mathematics person. I love thinking about mathematics. So, And then it says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In case we didn't get the idea that we're, you know, that we're, we're heirs, it's... Whatever Jesus has, we're joint heirs with Jesus. We're not inferior to Jesus because we've been made children of Jesus. Now we are inferior to his deity because he is God. We will never, we will never be God. Now we, will, we are above the angels, but we're going to be below God, and we will be for eternity. And most religions have this idea of that we are wanting to become gods. And Mormonism is built on that. You do enough good that you, that you hopefully will earn your position as a god over a planet that you get to rule over and, and populate that planet with your, your children. It's a really weird theology when you get down to it. Now, most Mormons don't fully understand that because it's not in the Book of Mormons. It's in their deeper books. And this is why when we talk to people of other religions... We don't want to sit there and try to bash what they believe. I can, I can try to bash Mormons, but the average Mormon does not necessarily believe all of what their books teach. The act, the, the, most of the normal Catholics don't believe everything that Catholicism teaches at the, at the uh, cardinal and bishop level and what they really know they believe. And if you try to tell them, they're going to deny that it exists because it's not what they've been taught. Right. So it's no sense sitting there trying to argue with them. Uh, there's no sense trying to argue with a Jehovah's Witness about what they believe because they believe what, they, what they've been told and they may, may or may not believe the deep truths that the cult totally believes. This is why when we talk to people, all we really need to know is the truth. You're a sinner going to hell. Jesus want, died for your sins and just play with the gospel. Keep simple. Keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. Because... Whatever I say to them, they're not going to necessarily believe it. And if they believe it, they've been so indoctrinated in it, they're not going to pull back from it anyway. And this is why you know, there's groups that go on, you've got to know all about these cults so you can argue them out of what they believe. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I know what they believe. I've studied what they believe. I, you know, we see this whole complex going in with, with the Muslim world. We've got our government and the political correct side saying they're a religion of peace. Well, if you read their books they're nowhere and their history, they're nowhere close to a religion of peace. Never have been, never will be. They will put a face of peace on to try to get what they want, but they are not a religion of peace. Now, arguing with them isn't going to work. No. It's not going to work. You need to be able to present the gospel and say it's so simple. God loved you so much that he was willing to pay for your sins so that you could go to heaven. And that's what we want to get into. I've shared with everybody, I was doing a question and answer one time, and the very first question was, how do I convince a homosexual that their lifestyle is a sin? And then I can, so they'll come to Jesus, and I go, who cares? Yeah. There's other sins you can get them to know that they're a sinner going to hell. Get them saved, then let God work on revealing to them that homosexuality is a sin because the word says it is. But my job is not to sit there and convince them that it's a sin. My job is to tell them what God says and let the Holy Spirit come in and witness and, and, and work on their life. My job is just to share the gospel. 
And there are so many other sins to worry about out there. If somebody doesn't believe that lying is a sin, fine. There's a, a what have you stolen? You know, have, you know, what what, are, what other sins have you broken? You know, not that I believe anybody would think that lying is not a sin, but but you know, these are all the things that we deal with. There's all kinds of sins out there that we we can deal with, and and be able to work on. And then he says. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. Okay? If so be that we suffer with him. And this is one of those ifs and you will. If we are going to follow God, we will suffer with him. If we're not living for him, well, it's a, well, Satan doesn't have any desire to make you suffer necessarily. You might suffer, but he doesn't care one way or the other. But when we are following God, we will suffer with him. Whether it's persecution or rejection or who, you know, who do you think you are? You're so self-righteous, you know, and all you've done is tell him what God says about something. Uh, and then it says that we may be glorified with him. Our suffering is that we will be glorified. And I've been talking a little bit about this. How did the disciples look at it? When they suffered for Christ, they gloried that they were counted worthy of suffering for him. Most of us in our day are going, God, why am I suffering? This is terrible. This is, this is, not, this is just not what I've been told was going to happen because we have this, this bad gospel that's preached to us, especially in, in the Western world, that... If everything's not all hunky dory, you're not you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, then then something's wrong with your Christianity. And nowhere in the Bible does he talk about that being Christianity. Now, is being wealthy wrong? No. Job was Job was very wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Paul said that he had learned to be content in much and in little. So there were times when he had money. Most of the most of the home churches were in wealthy people's homes because they were big enough to have a large 30, 40, 50 people in them. It wasn't the, the poor person's hovel that they barely fit his family in. You know, you wouldn't have a home church in a place that barely hold, held five or six people. They would have been in the rich people's homes that had room for a large gathering. So God does not say wealth is wrong. Uh, and many Christians are taught that that money is the root of all evil. And that is not what the scripture says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so wealth is not wrong. Okay? Being healthy is not wrong. Being sick isn't, doesn't, isn't an indication that you're all bad either. How many times did they ask Jesus, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this, and he goes, neither. This is so that you all would see the power of God work. And Satan is just as able to make us sick as, as, as sin is. We look at Job, you know, when, jo when uh, Satan went to God and said, well, look, if you just touched his body, he's going to reject you. And God goes, okay, go ahead and try. You know, and I've seen it. I've seen many Christians who they get a little sick and they don't go to church, they don't go to Bible studies, they, they just totally shrivel up basically and say, okay, I give up. And, yeah. you know, and, and I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm just saying, I know one thing over the years that I've seen, I've seen a lot of Sunday-itis. Yeah. I wake up with a snivel. I can't go to coal. I can't go to church. Somebody, yeah. might, I might, somebody might get sick. Excuses. Yeah. You know, I woke up with a sore, a sore, sore arm. Oh, man, my arm is so sore. I can't, I can't go to church. And, you know, when you let Satan have the victory on one or two Sundays in a row, I can almost guarantee that person's going to be sick every Sunday. Now, I'm not saying you're running 103 fever and, yeah. you know, and you're on your deathbed, get up and go to church. No, I'm not saying that. You know, you, know, you you've got, you've got the, the, a full-blown full blown case of the flu. Don't come to church and give it to everybody. But if you just wake up on, you were healthy Saturday night and you feel, wake up feeling a little sick, you might just want to try coming to church and see what happens. Yeah, Most of the time, you'll feel, the closer to the church you get, the better you feel. And you'll feel good the rest of the rest of the week. If you still feel bad by the time you get to the church's parking lot, maybe you go, okay, God, I guess I'm really sick. And you can turn around and, and go back home. But my experience over and over the years has been the closer I get to church, the better I feel. And Satan's not going to get the victory. Or 
as in my case with all the arthritis and, and, and gout, I go to church anyway, just because I'm not gonna let a little pain in the joints keep me from going to church. You know, and when I say a little pain, you know, as you guys saw Sunday, that may be a lot of pain, but I'm still not gonna let it keep me from doing what I'm going to do. I never have, I'm not gonna do it now as a pastor, and I never let it get me down before that. Uh, I will just adapt like I did on Sunday morning during the communion. I knew that my left wrist was not going to be able to hold that tray, so there was no way I was going to try to administer communion the way I did, so we got help. So, but we all want to be that way. What is it that will keep us from serving God? Now, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate reasons to be laid up in bed. Uh, I do remember one time when I was so sore with gout, I could not get out of the bed. And I called somebody and he helped get me to the emergency room. That is how bad it took. It took something that bad to keep me from getting out because I couldn't move. I couldn't even move out of my bed. And I, and I finally got up and I tried to step down on my feet and could not. Yeah. So we actually ended up having to call the fire department to get me out of the room into his car and then was able to slide out of the car into a, into a wheelchair. I spent a Sunday morning in the emergency room getting shots for gout. Uh, but you know, this is what I'm saying. That what does it take? What does it take to keep us from serving God? And each person knows what, they're, what it is for them. And I have seen, you know, and it's amazing what Satan will do on Sunday mornings. Uh, I have seen more, more of my family fights have always been Sunday morning than any other day of the week. As we're getting ready to head out, there'll be fights about something, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, the kids would get into a fight. The, the baby would mess the diaper just, yeah. before, just before we were going out, which made us late for church, which then, which then would irritate me because I'm a very on-time person and you know, everything would be all messed up because of little things going on Sunday mornings. Never fail. And it wouldn't matter. Yeah, nothing would happen on a weekday when I was going to work or, yeah. or anything. It was always Sunday morning when it was time to worship God. And so we want to look at this. We are going to be suffering with him. The amount of suffering depends on how, how, how tenacious we are, how much, the, how much God has changed our life, how much we, we want to serve him, how much he has taught us to serve him. Do I look down on people who, who are sick on Sunday mornings? No, I feel sorry for them. I pray yeah. for them because to me, it's like, okay, I'm praying. My prayer is, Lord, make them stronger so that... They're not going to go through this. Help them come. Help them come to church, because I cannot look at somebody and say you're not where I'm at. Yeah. yeah. It took me 44 years to get to where I'm at. I can't expect anybody to be where I'm at. I can't expect anybody who's a new Christian to be a, to be a mature Christian. They're they're learning. I can't even expect people that have walked with God for a long time but never grown to be there. And I don't know why they didn't grow or didn't why they grew or didn't grow. It's not my business. My business is to teach God's word and to love people and to pray for them and to, you know, just to be sorrowful for them when, they, when they're making the wrong decisions. I, I look at some people and I just want to cry sometimes because I'm going, there's so much more than what you're, what you're accomplishing. I look at myself sometimes and want to cry because there's so much more that I should be accomplishing than I do. And we want to be careful that we don't judge others for where they're at because we don't know where they're at. We don't know what they've gone through. We don't know what brought them to where they're at. Uh, I feel fortunate that I didn't have to go through so much that other people had to go through because of God got me so early in my life. It doesn't mean that I'm looking down on anybody. I'm just fortunate that I didn't have to go through that. I didn't go through the drugs and alcohol. And believe me, I could have. I grew up in the 60s and early 70s. I was a teenager in the early 70s when everything was going crazy and nuts. Uh, so my life could have been totally different than it is, even though I grew, was in church during that period of time. It was God's word that kept me the way I was during that period of time because I was so much into it. And he was grooming me to be a teacher from the very early days. He put me in the word of God to groom me to be a teacher. Now, he could have done groomed me to the other things, but he did it for a teacher. And I'm thankful for him because I love doing what I do. And so... We are going to serve, suffer, but we suffer so that we can glorify him. That he will be glorified 
through us. And this is where we want to look at. What are we doing? How do we go through it? Our suffering gives us an opportunity to say, thank you, God, and let everybody see you work at work in my life. Or, boy, I really blew that one, God. Forgive me. And come back the next time when we suffer. But it's all for his glory. And I love that. It's all for his glory. We are put on the, the testimony seat of heaven and said, Here's my, and God is saying, here's my servant, Satan, go, go for it. Here's, here's your boundaries. And when we fail, we get to be redeemed and, and, and forgiven. And God still wins because he looks at Satan and says, well, yep, they're covered by the blood. They, 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 they're a winner still. And when we pass the test with flying colors, he says, see, see, Satan, you were wrong, just like you were with... You know, just like you were with Job. And remember, Job only failed uh, uh, past the first of the two tests, three tests. He failed the last one when he kept getting hammered by his friends. And he finally just started getting mad and started to defend his righteousness. And that's when God, at the end of the book, steps in and says, Okay, God, uh, okay Job, get ready to defend yourself. <laughs> you know, uh, get ready to defend yourself. I'm going to ask you some questions. <laughs> and that's when Job repented and of that, that. So we see both sides of Job. We see that when his family and possessions were taken, okay, God, thank you. Naked I came into the world, naked I'll return. You know, they took away his health, and he's okay. You know, he's pretty much okay with that. He's in pain. He's, you know, in sorrow. But then his friends came along. All those wonderful friends, friends like Job's who needed enemies. You know, and they really were friends. They they loved him because yeah. if you look at it, they spent the first first days just weeping with him. Yeah. They should have stayed at that point. They probably figured, why was he suffering so much if his God was letting him do that? So, well, you know, that's what they were. That's exactly what they were thinking yeah. because in their mind, they had a wealth and prosperity gospel. If you did right, God rewarded you and you should right. be wealthy. If you weren't wealthy, then there was something wrong with you. And we think that's a new doctrine in this, in this day and age. No, it was, it was taught during that. And it was pretty much what we see. Abraham was considered wealthy, a, a, a follower of God and a friend of God, and he was wealthy. Job was a follower of God, and he was wealthy. It was pretty much that was the whole idea. If you followed God, you were going to be wealthy. Everything was going to be good. Your kids were going to be good. You, you, know, you, were, you had this hedge around him that Satan accused him of having that he couldn't touch you, so everything was going to be good. That, was what they, that is what they believed. That is what they said to him. And the problem was Job believed it. Job did not understand why all this was happening to him because he's saying, God, I've been a righteous person. I've been offering my sacrifices. Hey, and God, by the way, when my kids had their parties, I was offering a sacrifice for them just in case they sinned. You know, and he's going, I don't understand this. And this was a struggle for him because it violated everything he believed about God because he knew that he didn't deserve this much. You know, he knew he was a sinner. He knew yeah. that, you know, that he could deserve something. But he didn't believe that he was a bad enough sinner that he deserved to have everything stripped away from him. You know, and he would have been just like his friends looking at somebody. Now, he says, I would have helped them. And, and I believe that he would have. But in the back of his mind, he would have been looking at, you know, well, gee, I don't know why you, why, what you've done that's so bad that deserves this kind of it. Here, I'm going to try to help you. But... His problem was that he totally believed that if you were righteous, you were going to be wealthy. And that's taught in our day and age. And it's sad because it's not a true statement. Yeah. Jesus said, put your treasure in heaven where moth and rust are not corrupt. And we are to be using treasures to help him. doesn't mean we can't use a bit for ourselves. It doesn't mean if we have a nice house, a nice car, that something's wrong with us. It just means, do we love those things, or are we just, you know, taking advantage of them? I'm sure that Abraham was very happy that he was wealthy and didn't have to worry about where the next meal was coming from and, and how he was going to take care of things. Uh, and it's very important for us to understand that wealth in and of itself is not wrong. Living a good lifestyle isn't wrong. It's nothing, nothing spiritual about living in a hobble with, with a bed and a, and a couch and just enough food in the, in the refrigerator for that day. There's nothing spiritual about that either. You know, either side is not spiritual or not, you know, is, is not spiritual or spiritual. It is just what it is. And God is saying, I'm going to meet your needs and we can put away. 
in Proverbs, which we're doing on Fridays, it talks all the way about plan for the future, put stuff away, save for the future. Well, that indicates that we are supposed to take some of our wealth and use it for our own personal use. Now, if I'm trying to hoard everything for my personal use, now I've got a problem of the opposite side. God, you're not important. I've got I to gotta have, I've got to have, but how much is enough? You'll never reach enough. If all you're trying to do is, is get enough stuff, there'll never be enough. And anybody who's ever started making money knows that it's never enough. There's always a better car that you can get, always a better, bigger house that you can get, you know, better pool, better, better furniture. You know, there's always better stuff that you can get. And there's no end to that. I found that out in my lifetime. I started out, I lived very comfortably at minimum wage. Didn't have a lot of stuff. Had to ride the bus back and forth to work into the, in the stores. Made a little bit of money, got a car. Made a little bit more money, got a nicer house, nicer car. Made more money, got a nicer car, nicer house. You know, never had a mansion or anything like that, but it kept, kept moving up you know, because I had more money to spend. And maybe I spent more on myself than I probably should have in those days, but I don't know that that's true or not because I still tithed and gave God money. So, you know, but the key is, how, what is that doing to us? God wants to meet our wants if we'll use it correctly. If we'll serve him with what he gives us, he wants to meet our wants. He wants to give us nicer things. You know, obviously, because we have many people in the Bible who were wealthy that followed God. Oftentimes, though, wealth takes us away from God. And I've seen that happen. The richer people get, the more toys they buy. And then the more toys they buy, the more time they have to use to use the toys. And before long, they were being blessed because they were serving God. And then the blessings take them away from God because they get caught up in them. They buy their quads and their boats and, and all this stuff. And, and obviously, you have to start. If you have that stuff, you've got to use it. Now, my daughter asked me one time, wouldn't you love to have a boat? And I go, yes, I'd really love to have a boat. When would I use a boat? I don't have a clue when I'd use a boat. It would take me away from God to use the boat. It's an investment. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's an investment. You could always yeah. sell but see, I, I, would, I love the water. I love being on boats. I, I've had friends who've had boats, and I love being on the water. I love being on boats, especially sailboats. Uh -huh. now, but when would I use it? I'm, I'm busy all week long teaching, and Sunday is a busy day for me. And most Saturdays I'm busy, so the weekends are gone. So it would sit, in the, it would sit being dry docked most of the time, or I'd have to reject what I'm doing and, and go use it. And that's what ends up happening with most people. They get all these blessings. They're serving God, and they start getting blessings, and they start spending a lot of the blessing on themselves. And now I've got a quad I've got to go take out a lot. I've got to get out of my quad and ride it, or my motorcycle, or my, or my boat, or my snowmobile, which doesn't mean anything in this area. But, you know, but whatever it is, I've got to go out and use it. Oh, I've got, my, I've got my hunting lodge. I've got to get up there and use my hunting lodge once in a while, or, or my, you know, my skis, or whatever. You know, but you see what I'm saying, the more we get blessed, the more toys we buy, and then all of a sudden, to use the toys, we've got to take time away from God. And it was God who, the service of God, that brought us the, the money to be able to buy the toys. And, and it's just a vicious circle, and so many people have been torn down by wealth yeah. because they start to forget God. And that's a serious place to be. God wants to give us blessings, but he wants to make sure that we're not going to use them and take, take us away from him in the process. And one of the ways I talk about it is sometimes we get to this mentality of uh, my blessed lifestyle is normal. And we're in trouble if we get to a place where we think that the blessing that God gives us is normal. Because then we stop thanking him for it. We just take it for granted. Okay, this always happens, so I know this is normal. No, it's the blessing. Don't forget that it's a blessing. Don't, don't ever forget that it's a blessing. Galatians 4. Starting at verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and because we are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So again, this whole idea, in the, I love this, in the fullness of time, when, it, when the time was ripe, Jesus came. 
And this is kind of amazing. Jesus came at probably the best time in all of the world to be able to reach the world. The Roman Empire was building roads. It was easy to get from any place in Rome to someplace else in Rome. There was one language in all of Rome, and it was Koine Greek. They took the Greek language and made a common Greek, and everybody spoke Koine Greek. Uh, they also spoke whatever language was common in their area, but it was a perfect time for them. It was a fullness of time. It was an easy time that the whole world, the known world, I mean, the, all of North Africa, all of, all of uh, the Middle East, all of Europe, all the way to England, all the way out to India and to the mountains that blocked India from, from China, uh, was able to be reached with the gospel. And that's where most of the people lived at that time. And the world was being reached because Rome made it possible to reach probably half the world at that time. I and mean, not too much in Southern Africa, nothing in the new, this new world, but most of the known world was being reached. Now they knew about China, they just couldn't get there easily because of the mountains kept China separated from, from the rest of the world. But the fullness of time Jesus came, born of a woman so that we could become his children. And here we go again with being able to call Abba Father, that intimacy, that, that, that closeness. So we end up with a new family again, the old idea of being adopted, a brand new family, and a new name, new father. Ephesians 1. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to his good pleasure, to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption again. And this word predestined, this is a word that drives people nuts. <laughs> that God predestined us to be his children. And it is a hard one. It's one that we want to look at. And I bring it up because reading this verse. We are predestined. God said we are. That doesn't mean that some are going to guarantee to go to hell or, you know, but we're also told that whosoever will. Now, how those two come together and meet, I don't know. God understands it much better than I do. Uh, I, when, I was in, when I was in Bible college, I thought I understood it because I had an understanding of predestination that said that God knew what we were going to decide, and, and so he just, you know, decided that that would be the answer. But then that takes away from his sovereignty. He is sovereign and he's going to have his way. And so we have to be careful. We don't understand it. I will never understand it. I've struggled with this for, for decades and still don't understand it. How can God predestinate us and, and us have a choice? I don't know. And, I, and I'm going to just leave it at that. I know that both are true because the Bible teaches that both are true, but I have no clue as to how that can be, how they can come together, because to me they seem opposites. But God is greater than we are, and it, you know maybe in heaven is He'll He'll explain it to us, and we'll see from there. And one of the one of the pastors I've heard this quoted this statement. I don't remember who it's from, and I know it wasn't him originally because it's from one of the church church. He says it would be. The door will be whosoever will on one side. When you get into heaven, it will be eternally predestined and selected. So I don't know how that works. I don't, you know, but it's as good a description as any that I can can come up with. That, you know, uh, he's basically saying what I believed in the, you know, early days of my Christianity. But then I have to look at God's sovereignty, and it's hard to understand how God can be sovereign and let us make choices. It's it's very hard because he's going to do what he wants to do. Uh -huh. I can't stand in his way. If he's, if he's going to have me do something, I'm going to do it. And, you know, there's foreknowledge involved in this and all kinds of other, other aspects on it. And I'm sure if, when, when we get to where God's at, we'll understand it all or all that we need to understand. But for now... We just have to understand that we are, he does predestine things and, and we do have a free will. And he is sovereign. <laughs> and how all that works together, we will probably never know this side of heaven. 
and we will only understand on the, on the other side of heaven if God thinks it's important for us to understand. And because I've, as I've taught so many times, God's ways are higher than our ways and they will always be higher than our ways. We will spend all of eternity trying to get to know God better and still never fully knowing him because he is that much higher than we are. And if we could ever fully understand him, then we would be God. And we will never be God, and we will never fully understand him because we will never be God. And we need to understand that and accept that. That's a limit in who we are as his created being. We will never know everything that he knows. And to a degree we see that in families because you know the, the elders in a family usually know more, have been, are, have been wiser. And it's amazing if you look at it, you know, when kids are little, you're, their parents know everything. They get to be teenagers and their parents know nothing. Right. And then the older they get, the smarter they realize that their parents really are. You know, even if they get an education and everything, they usually find out that their parents are still pretty smart. They've learned things from just by living. And it's amazing. We've all done it. We've all seen it in our families. You know, where, man, my parents are dumb, they don't know anything, and then slowly we gradually in their 20s and 30s start realizing, well, maybe they know a few things about life. And then as, then as we get older, okay, my parents were pretty smart, they kind of knew a few things. And, you know, and then we watch our kids go through the whole process and said, why, it's, it's repeating again. And it keeps repeating generation after generation after generation. And every kid, think, you know, when they're a teenager, begins to think their parents are dumb and don't know anything. They're, they're, they're just trying to have, you know, keep me from having fun. The sad thing in our generation is that the environment is telling them that they're smarter than their parents and really encouraging what's already there and encouraging the rebellion. And that's very sad because in the old days it used to be, you know, when you grow up, <laughs> when you grow up you'll know that you weren't as smart as you are. And I'm beginning to really dislike some of the TV commercials and everything where it's, you know, or even some of the things that the government does to try to, you know, okay kids, you are really smart, you know all about this green stuff and everything, you go teach your parents. Uh -huh. you know, and that bugs the daylights out of me because yeah. it's teaching them disrespect and arrogancy and everything and telling them that it's okay and that it's natural and that it's good. Yeah. And we've got to be careful with that stuff. We've got to be so careful with that because it is so against the Bible. God is so much about respecting elders, respecting government, respecting uh -huh. leaders. He does not want them torn down. No. Uh, I shocked one person one time when I told him that the American Revolution, though we had a good result out of it, was not biblical. They went against a king and a leader. And it was not biblical. And they put a big biblical grounds on it and everything, but it... it God does not condone an assault against a, to a leader. And this is something we've got to be very careful of because God very carefully, Miriam and Aaron, Aaron came against Moses, saying, who are you to think you're such a leader? You know, you know you're, you're, not, you're not this perfect person. Miriam walked away with leprosy for seven days. And Moses had to pray for her. Yeah. And David said, I'm not going to touch the anointed of God. We would not kill Saul, even though he had more than one opportunity to kill Saul. And not, o not only just in battle, but just Saul totally defenseless. He had more than one opportunity to kill him. We've got to be careful because God's saying you don't go against authority. You go against authority, you're in a bad place. Yeah. You, know, you go against authority, Miriam found out. You know, she went against authority and ended up being struck with leprosy. You've got to be very careful. I know two people in my lifetime that have gone against pastors and then watched them get, get suffering. Yeah. And it's like, you don't do that. You know, if you have something bad about a pastor, leave that church and leave, you know, go find another church that right. you can go to. Or go to that pastor. You know, start by going to that pastor, obviously. Right. But if not, go to a different, different church. It happened to me once where I started having problems with the pastor. And so I just went to a different church. Yeah. And many of my friends go, why'd you leave? I go, because God told me to. Well, that's it? I go, yep, that's it. That's all I'm going to tell you about why I left. You know, because it's between the pastor and God be on, on him yeah. and, how he, and what he does with the church because it is that serious. And same thing with our government. 
we, especially in America, have a hard time because we get to pick and, and gripe about our governments, you know, supposedly okay. And I had a pastor one time, I, I told him because I disagreed with the direction he was trying to go, and I sat down in his office and we talked about it and I gave him, you know, where I thought should be going. He goes, okay. And I go, now I'm going to tell you the next part. I will not speak at a business meeting against what you're going to, what you're planning to do again. He goes, well, you had that right. I go, show it to me in the Bible. He goes, well, it's just our tradition as Baptists. I'm going, no, 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 not tradition. The Bible tells me I can't. You're telling me I can't. Where in the scriptures are you telling me that I can? And I kept my word. I never opened my mouth one again at that time in a business meeting to go against where he wanted to take the church, even though I thought it was wrong and still to this day think that he was wrong. He's the one that's going to have to stand before God and say, and God says, why did you do this? And he'll have to give an account for it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'll be given an account on why I thought it was wrong. But the one thing I'm going to not have to give an account for is attacking that pastor and saying, you know, taking him down in front of his, trying to take him down in front of his church. And so we want to be very careful. We are to love one another. We're to exhort one another. We're to lift one another up. We are to go to them individually maybe and say, you know, I've noticed this sin in your, you know, this sinful area of your life, this weakness in your life. You know, I've really been praying for you and you, you know, and show them. But that's as far as we're going, you know. If I have a problem with you, I'm not going to go to Mark and say, well, you know all about this. That, you know, you know what Judy's been doing? You know, that's not what I'm going to be doing because that's not a godly thing to right. do. And if we have a problem with somebody, we go to them and address the problem. Because it's not going to, number one, it's not going to help to go to anybody else. Uh, it all has to be before God and say, God, this is, this is the problem I have. Help me deal with it. And usually God's going to keep, say, keep your mouth shut, keep praying for them. Love them. And I have seen it over and over. Love and grace makes more changes in people's life than hammering them with the rules of the, of the Scripture. And doesn't mean I don't teach what the truth is. It doesn't mean that I teach that sin is sin, but I'm not going to sit there and hammer somebody over the head. See what this verse says? See what this verse says? He, right. you, know, you, know, you get your life right. That's not going to work. It's going, God loves you. He wants, to, he wants to change your life. He wants to make more of him come out of you through your crucifixion of your flesh. And he'll crucify the flesh, and he will bring us back out, and he will make us live, and we will start living him. And it is amazing. I love the Christian walk. I really love the Christian walk. Because all i got to do is let God do his work in me. And then he gives me all these benefits. He gives me his life. He gives me his, his family. He gives me everything. And all i got to do is let him crucify me and just die. Die to myself and let him come forth. And that makes Christianity so easy. It's so easy, and it really is easy, and I know it's hard to do, but it is an easy life. You know, there's one of those very big contradictions out there. The answer is so easy. God crucify me. But doing it is so hard. The actual doing is hard. And I've shared this with so many different people, and they've gone, well, how do I do it? You just let God do it. In the verse, verse Galatians 2.20, I am crucified. Not, not I am crucifying myself, not I will do it, but, or, or I may be crucified, I am crucified. crucified. And that means that somebody else has done it to me, and that is God. He crucifies my flesh. I just have to let him. I don't go trying to run around and hide, hide in the corners and under rocks and in the, in the storm shelter. <laughs> I just let God <laughs> come in and crucify my flesh. Now, the harder I make it on him, the, the, the longer it'll take to be crucified. But I need to learn to just surrender. And I've said this so many times. I learned to surrender. And somebody asks, well, how do you surrender? Well, I go, well, how does the bad guy surrender to the police? Come out with your hands up. You have a choice. When they, when they say, come out with your hands up, you have a choice. I can come out with guns blazing and get killed anyway. Or I can throw down the gun and come out with my hands up and surrender. And that's basically what we're looking at with God. He's saying, come out with your hands up and just surrender. And we surrender. Or we sit there and fight tooth and nail to try to keep it from happening. Our choice. Our choice. One, it's going to, we're, we're going to end up crucified no matter what. 
You know, it could be that we get shot from the longer distance <laughs> and crucified, or we come out and get it voluntarily. But God is eventually going to bring us to the cross. In, at the very end stage is that we die and we are glorified as Christians and made perfect. It's either going to be a great big change or lesser of a change. It'll still be a big change because there's lots of sin left in our life when we die. There's always going to be a big change, but it's, the degree of change is going to be you know, how far in that process have we gotten. And we want to be able to get to the place where we're saying, I'd love to get to the place where I'll be an, Eli uh, an Elijah or an Enoch and just say, okay, God, take me home. I'm, I'm done here. I'm so close to perfect. Just take me home. I will never reach that point. I know I won't. I'm too far. I have too far to go still. But wouldn't it be nice to be there where you're yeah. walking so close to God that he says, okay, you're almost perfect, so come on, come on home. The rapture is going to be part of that. When he says, okay, it's time for everybody to come home. And we are glorified in an instant and leave this earth. And it's going to be a miraculous thing. It's going to be a scary thing for those that are left because millions to billions of people will just disappear. In a blink of an eye, they'll disappear. And if you can think about the chaos that will happen at that time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go with us in all that we do. Give us opportunities to share with you. Help us to learn to walk the way you would want us to walk. In your son's name, amen.